Hello and welcome to the Highway to Health show. In today's episode, I am joined by Lynn Del Mastro Thompson. She is, among many other things, the author of the Amazon bestseller, You Are Not Your Diagnosis. As many of you know, this is something that I have always placed a lot of emphasis on when dealing with patients. In my experience, it is very important to not let the diagnosis define you. So when I had the opportunity to interview Lynn and I learned about the book and her story, I just had to get her on the podcast. In that book, she tells her story about being misdiagnosed for several years and how that made her adopt her diagnosis as her identity. It made her almost give up any hope for recovery and to start feeling progressively more and more like this diagnosis that she did not even have. I won't tell you the rest of the story, but she and I do go more into it in our interview, and you can read the book for free as well with a Kindle Unlimited account. If you don't have one of those, you can just go to dr.e.show forward slash Kindle and sign up for one. And the book, by the way, is also available in paperback formats, and you can find the link to that in the show notes and in this episode's description too. Now, if you missed last week's episode, you might want to go back and listen to it when I tell you about my guest, Kathy Biasi. She is a registered holistic nutritionist and cancer coach. But the main reason why I wanted to have her on the podcast after listening to her on her own radio show is because she spends a lot of time educating people on nutrition, especially around the topic of our microbiome and the immune system. So we spoke a lot about that, obviously. She shared what the microbiome is, why it is so important for us to care for it, and she also shared some specific steps to take in order to heal our gut. Make sure to go back and listen to Kathy on episode 26 if you haven't yet done so. Now that we cover that, there is one last thing remaining before we can jump in the fast lane of the highway to health, and that is to thank our sponsor. <laughs> the sponsor for this episode, as well as every previous one, is none other than yours truly. You probably don't know this, but aside from the obvious time investment that goes into creating each episode, there's also a monetary one. And no, I'm not going to ask you to donate anything or to support me on Patreon or any other platform. All I want to ask of you is to let me know that you're listening, that you care, and that you want my team and I to continue making these episodes. That's it. And there's two ways you can do this. One, you can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or in Podchaser. Just head on over to your podcast app and make sure you're subscribed and then add a rating. Or head on over to dre.show forward slash rate. Now, the other way you can show your support of the work we do is to sign up to receive a free copy of my book on stem cell therapy. You can do that by heading on over to dre.show forward slash book. And yes, you can find this link on the episode's description. Taking action on either one of these is greatly appreciated. Your comments and support helps us know that we're making a difference and it pushes us forward. Not to mention, obviously, your ratings allow us to be discovered by other people. And that allows us to continue growing and to bring in more amazing guests to share their knowledge with us for free. But anyways, let's not keep you any longer. Here's my conversation with Linda Master Thompson. And remember, you are on the highway to health and I'm your guide to get you there. Are you ready to live ageless? Want to discover alternative health choices, cutting edge nutrition, and fitness for the entire family? Welcome to Highway to Health Show with your host, Dr. E, the stem cell guy, where Dr. E helps you live ageless. And now, here's your host, Dr. E. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Highway to Health Show. I'm your host, Dr. E, the stem cell guy. And joining me today is Linda Master Thompson. She is a certified body talk practitioner, speaker, and author of the Amazon bestseller, 
you are not your diagnosis. She holds a master's degree in somatic psychology and has completed additional specialized training in biofeedback, therapeutic yoga, and Reiki. After being misdiagnosed with leukemia at the age of 25, Lynn became passionate about sharing with the world her message that just because a doctor has said an illness is chronic or incurable doesn't mean that it has to be a life sentence and that Western medicine isn't the only approach to healing. When we explore other holistic options, true healing rather than symptom management can occur. Wow, Lynn. So right off the bat, you're attacking doctors. <laughs> Not attacking doctors, just saying that there are other options as well. I live in both worlds. So. Couldn't agree more with you. Welcome to the show, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> so I see so many things in your journey that I've heard before that it's crazy, really. And I'll share them with you throughout this conversation. But before we dive straight into it, why don't you just share with us a little bit of your health journey? How did you end up being misdiagnosed for leukemia? So my journey kind of started back in 2004 when I was in graduate school, and I thought I was a relatively healthy young woman. Um, I had scheduled an elective surgery that summer. I was going to have a breast reduction, and that kind of led me down a rabbit hole of pre-op blood work and the night before the surgery. Um, the surgeon called me and he said, you know, I got your pre-op labs and something looks abnormal. And of course, that's the last thing you want to hear when someone calls you and says something looks weird. And he said, before you panic, I'm going to send you back and have the labs run again. You know, sometimes labs make errors or, you know, this could somehow been a case of test tubes getting switched and this wasn't your sample. Let's make sure that this is the case. So I went back and sure enough, it was the same result. And so surgery had to be canceled. And he said, I want you to go see your primary doctor as soon as possible. He didn't really let on too much of what was wrong, just saying, I can't do surgery on you because of what I've seen in the blood work. And I think I went the very next day to my primary doctor who started a whole bunch more you know, blood tests and things. And the next thing I know, I get a phone call from another doctor who I've never met before, which is, again, another alarming situation to have a strange person call you. Cold calls from doctors is rarely a good thing, right? Right. And he said, you know, how are you feeling? And I was like, well, other than I'm completely freaked out that I don't know who you are and why you're calling me, fine. And he said, okay, well, if you don't have any symptoms, you can come check in the hospital tomorrow. And it was like, A, what symptoms should I be looking for? Because I didn't even know what we were talking about. And B, how am I supposed to stay calm until the next morning and, you know, <laughs> sleep? But I had no symptoms that night and I checked into the hospital the next morning. And basically what started was at that point, a two week journey of two different hospitals, multiple blood tests, procedures, bone marrow biopsy, all sorts of things. And the first thing they figured out was that I had clotted off the veins that drain my liver, the portal veins. And of course that is not supposed to happen. And so they kind of had that part when I went to the initial hospital, but the part of like, why is this happening? And also how to remedy that with going in and ballooning open those veins, they weren't as familiar with um, that procedure at a smaller hospital. So they sent me to another hospital, a major medical center in California, and at that point did more tests there and ultimately came up with the diagnosis of leukemia, chronic myelogenous leukemia. 
And I actually lived with that diagnosis for three years and was treated for that for three years, not knowing, you know, I I didn't feel like I was getting better, but I didn't feel like I had any doctors that were really listening to the fact that I said, I still feel like horrible. You know, they said, oh, well, your labs look great. I'm like, well, why am I losing all of this weight, (laughs) feeling exhausted? You know, like I wasn't healing in any way. I was getting probably worse. And I kept requesting a different hematologist for my primary doctor. It was one of those cases of needing a referral to a specialist, and I wasn't able to get one because the two of them had gone to medical school together. So he had a perspective of, oh, you know, this is a great doctor. We went to school together. And I was like, but I go to his office and he spends three minutes with me and he asks me how I feel. And when I say I feel horrible, he goes, oh, well, you look great. And I'm like, how is that the proper answer to the question? How do you feel? And you say you feel horrible. That's not really listening to a patient. So it was only really three years later when I left my graduate school program and got different health insurance and a different primary doctor that I could then get a different hematologist. Wow, that's crazy. And throughout three years, you were receiving treatment for a condition that you really didn't have. Yes, yes. And in that first visit with the new hematologist, like I brought, you know, this huge stack of lab results and all sorts of things. And he looked at it like in that first visit, I remember him questioning the diagnosis. It was like, how did it take three years to finally have somebody look at this and say, this doesn't make sense? Wow. Yeah. No wonder you're attacking doctors now. (laughs) Certain kinds of doctors, for sure. Doctors who don't listen to their patients. I'm very, have a big voice about saying, you know, you can fire a doctor if they're not listening to you. I could not agree more with you. I could not agree more with you. And as a matter of fact, I do a lot of education. I speak a lot to patients and to doctors as well, but a lot to patients. And that's one of the things that we discuss. As a matter of fact, as well, a couple of episodes ago, we had uh, Dr. Nick here. And he's a primary care doctor, by the way. And he says the exact same thing. He says, listen, if a patient doesn't empathize with me, if we don't have that trust, that relationship, and sometimes it can happen because no doctor is perfect. We're humans. And sometimes it can happen. And he said, the best thing I can do is to refer him to a different doctor. And the best thing they can do is to fire me as a doctor, right? Shouldn't be as harsh as it is, but it is your health. It's the only one you have that has to be your priority. So... This is probably something you share in your book, which is aptly titled, You Are Not Your Diagnosis. And as you and I were talking about before we started the conversation, this is something that I've been saying to my patients for as long as I can remember. I would always tell them that the label their doctor gave them was just that, a label. It didn't really have to define them. It was just like telling them that they're tall or short or that they're blonde or brunettes. And the doctors can be wrong. We can make mistakes. And there's a lot we don't know to begin with. So What is it that, besides your obvious three-year, let's call it, experience, that made you realize that this labeling of patients is a problem? Because obviously, I'm sure that after that, and once you started really focusing down on it, you realize that you're far from alone in this. So how big of a problem do you think this is? I think it's quite a big problem. I mean, I think there's a lot of experience many of my clients have of feeling like the diagnosis becomes the identity. In my own story, I remember people seeing me differently, like friends, family, you know, anybody in my life, they heard the word leukemia. And I remember there was a sudden kind of shift in how I was treated and seen. And, you know, the conversation was always like, oh, how are you doing? You know, how are you feeling? 
And that's a big part of the message of not being your diagnosis, because the more you get sunk into that space of feeling that's your identity, feeling that's how people see you, or especially how you see yourself, the more it becomes kind of ingrained in your body, like, oh, this is who I am. And even ultimately, if it is the correct diagnosis, and you're dealing with a health issue, that's not who you are, ultimately. Your all the other things in your life, a parent, spouse, or, you know, all of your other identities are still there. It's not just this one thing. Of course, of course. In fact, I think that we as doctors, a lot of the time we do patients a disservice by labeling them. Because just like you said, people will start identifying with their diagnosis. They will start internalizing it. And instead of seeking to restore health, their quest becomes to be free of the label. And a lot of times that can't be done. I mean, just as an example, for instance, we used to treat a lot of patients with multiple sclerosis in our stem cell clinic. And these patients, usually you're going to recognize this story because they used to have, for instance, they would normally have a neurologist who would completely oppose stem cell treatments. But every once in a while, we'd have a patient who came down for treatment and his doctor had performed an MRI right before treatment with the purpose of proving that stem cell therapy didn't work. And so I remember this one patient we had, and she came down in a wheelchair. She had very little control over her bladder at this point, so she had also to wear a diaper, and she didn't coordinate very well. She could move a lot, and she received the treatment, and everything went well, and after a few days, she went home. Then about two weeks later, I spoke to her, and she mentioned that now she was considering even not wearing the diaper because she was regaining bladder control among several other benefits, right? And then some more time passed and she had to go back to her neurologist at some point. And he asked her to get a follow-up MRI. And lo and behold, the MRI looked exactly the same as the previous one. All the lesions were still there. It was almost identical. So if you looked at both MRIs, it looked like nothing had happened, right? Just like your doctor's treating your lab results, nothing had happened. In your case, the lab results look great, but in this case, the MRI was exactly the same. So the neurologist quickly thought, you know what? I knew it. You've been ripped off because she was still meeting the criteria for multiple sclerosis. So he paid no attention to her when she said that she was recovering some of her mobility, that she had regained bladder control or anything else. He was certain that those things were caused by placebo effect because the MRI unequivocally proved that she still had MS and that she couldn't be feeling better. Can you believe that? <laughs> well, ultimately, if it is the placebo effect, who cares? Like, it's super powerful as well. <laughs> I love the placebo effect. <laughs> it's the power of our minds, right? There are so many things, and it is so disappointing a lot of the times from a lot of our colleagues. And I'm sure that I have been guilty of this as well at some point, because in our quest to be objective, in our quest to be always truthful, in our quest to be always not sugarcoating all these things and be direct, a lot of the times we don't realize how we're literally shooting down our patients' hopes. Yes, very much. I mean, I think the way, you know, the diagnosis is delivered is so impactful too, you know? I mean, I still remember that moment when the doctor came into the hospital room and said the word leukemia. And it's like, I can remember all of the kind of surrounding tone and how he was, his posture, like all of those things. I remember that moment very clearly. And that's such a pivotal moment in any patient's experiences when they are told, you know, what, what they think is going on. Exactly. And especially when you go in to see a doctor, a specialist in that area, and the only thing, really the only thing that you have left with you is hope. 
and you're hoping that you're going to get better. You're hoping that it's not going to last forever. You're hoping that you're just going to go back to your normal self and suddenly learning that, oh, guess what? You're going to have this for the rest of your life and it's probably going to end up killing you and there's nothing that can be done. How much of a disservice is that? Despite it being true, and a lot of times that's my argument with a lot of doctors. They say, well, it's true. There's nothing we can do and conditions still going to progress and still going to happen. And I said, yeah, but there's got to be a different way of handling these news, don't you think? I definitely think there is. I mean, I was talking to a client last week who was saying she went to see a new doctor and the doctor was all focusing about the worst case scenario. And she's not in the worst case scenario at this point. And she said, you know, it's not helpful to me to hear somebody go all the way from where I am to the worst possible outcome here. You're just scaring me. You know, you're just putting me into fight or flight, which ultimately, again, is not going to help the body heal. It's going to do more of the opposite. It's going to create more of the problem because she's just stressed by that situation. And then you start manifesting all those things. I remember, and I've shared this before in the podcast, you probably don't know this, but I'm a cancer survivor. I had Hodgkin's lymphoma several years ago. It's already 13, 14 years ago. And one of the things that the oncologists mentioned, almost just not even thinking about it, because I was already in med school when I was undergoing treatment, one of them said, well, you have to be very careful now because the biggest risk factor for having cancer is having had cancer before. So you're a lot more likely than everybody else to have it. So now, for a long time, I was almost conditioning myself to thinking, you know what, I'm just waiting for the time when it happens again. Yes. That's it. And talking to other people, good friends of mine, people who have been on the podcast before, and they've overcome a cancer diagnosis, suddenly it comes back. It is that same commonality. Everyone says that. They're like, you know what? At some point when they had a recurrence, and I haven't had one because, you know, I also changed my mindset and I realized, you know what? No, that's a one-off thing. And that's just the way it is. But everyone that I've spoken to or a lot of people that I've spoken to who have had a recurrence, they agree on that. They said, you know what? For a long time, I was just waiting for it to happen again. Right. I just didn't really believe that I was past it. So, and I know this is exactly your area of expertise. So, Before we dig really deep into it, it is called body talk. So what exactly is body talk? So body talk is a healing modality that was created by an Australian gentleman who has a whole bunch of different credentials. He's an acupuncturist, a chiropractor, and then has studied many, many different healing systems. And basically it integrates a lot of these different healing systems. So there's elements of working with Chinese medicine and the five element system. There's a lot of Western science. In fact, one of my teachers and mentors actually used to work on the human genome project. So she's a PhD scientist turned into a teacher and body talk practitioner. And basically the whole modality is about trying to understand what the underlying symptom is or the diagnosis, whatever that is, what it's communicating to us. What is the underlying root of that issue? What's the imbalance that's going on? And ultimately, how can we create the conditions for the body to heal? Exactly. And that's one of the things that I really liked about some of the videos that I've watched of you explaining this. And I think I heard you in another podcast as well, that it is creating the adequate conditions for the body to heal. And this is something that I've been for several years telling people that is the basis of how stem cell therapy works. Because people sometimes think that, 
you get stem cell therapy and then you just fix things with the stem cells. But in reality, what stem cell therapy does is it promotes healing. It helps your body heal. Of course, it gives it a boost and it allows all the different cells. And there's a lot of different mechanisms through which this happens. But in reality, it is the patient's own body that heals. It is not something that is being done. So I think this is incredibly powerful. And I do believe firmly that we have an internal way, an internal mechanism of healing. So how do you, in your field and your expertise, how do you help people leverage this healing power? A lot of times it's kind of working with people on mindset, like how are they thinking about their health? What are they telling themselves on a daily basis? Are they thinking I'm never going to get better? Or are they creating possibilities for themselves of, I believe that my body is working towards healing. So there's a lot of mindset work that needs to happen. Some of the work that I do itself is like facilitated healing around belief systems, because sometimes we actually need to go in there and like clear belief systems on the conscious or subconscious level. And that's not always something you can do with just kind of replacing a thought or writing affirmations that can be powerful at times, but there are certain times that it's like a really deep seated belief that we need to get in there and create that condition of going from thinking this is what it is and I'm never going to get better to now I actually have the potential to heal. And a lot of the times as well, it's something, it's a belief that is seemingly unrelated to the manifestation that we're having, correct? If I recall correctly, I think I read an article that you wrote about a pain in your knee. Yes. And that you really couldn't tell what it was for like years. So do you mind giving us kind of like the cliff's note on that and how that got you started into this? Yeah. So that was actually how I found Body Talk about six years ago, I think. I woke up one morning and I had this pain in my left knee and it wasn't from overexerting myself, banging into anything, falling down. There was like no physical injury to my knee. And I started trying all of the holistic things because I knew there was no reason that I needed to go see a doctor. Like I hadn't broken anything. So I was seeing a chiropractor and getting acupuncture and massage and it still wouldn't improve. So it went on for a number of months. Maybe it would improve 10 to 15%, but it wouldn't kind of accumulate and get better and better and better. I was just kind of staying in this, like not really getting better mode. So I went to see this woman who I had met a year before who told me she did something called body talk. And I had thought, well, it feels like this pain, like I kept having this sense it was like speaking a language, but it was like a language that I'm like, I don't know, is it speaking Japanese? (laughs) I don't speak Japanese, like whatever language it was, I was like, I don't know what it's saying. I need a translator. And so when I remembered this woman who did something called body talk, I thought, well, maybe she's like a translator. I don't know. And in that very first session that I went to see her, she raised kind of a memory of something that had happened right before um, the actual pain came on, which was my parents had come to stay with me. My dad was going through major depression, anxiety. He was basically suicidal. So they were with me for, I think, about a week or 10 days trying to get a second opinion because they live in a smaller town. And so we were trying to get a different perspective. And I had focused on being with them for the time that they were there. And then they left. And I just tried to go back into work mode. You know, I was like, I need to get stuff done because I own my own business and I've taken this time off. And what my body was trying to say was I had just been through a trauma. I mean, there was actually a moment in that experience with my dad where he tried to open the car door when the car was moving. And I don't even know if that was, he was just panicked 
or whether he was actively trying to do something. I don't think he was because I don't think he would have deliberately done that, like with his daughter driving the car, but it was very traumatic. And my body was kind of calling me back to that moment of like, that was very emotional and scary. And I had done nothing to acknowledge what had just happened. I just kind of went, okay, they went home. Now I got to get stuff done, which is, I think, very much how we are conditioned in our culture. We just move on from things that happen. And ultimately, the body stores things. The body holds what we don't process, especially emotions and traumas. And so the knee was like kind of the screaming at me of like, hey, (laughs) you went through trauma come back and process it. And in one session alone, the pain was 95% gone. And I was like, what just happened? (laughs) Wow. It is really crazy when you bring it up, because like you said, it is something that anyone with any clinical training would have told you that it's got nothing to do with it. Right. It's completely unrelated. I mean, how's that even (laughs) related? How's that even helping you or, or anything? And going back to your point, what if it was placebo effect? Yeah, ultimately, I was like, I cared, you know, the pain was gone. It was three months of suffering and pretty much any position I was in, it was like becoming hard to walk or exercise. And I was just like, make it stop. I just don't want this pain anymore. Yeah, and it was gone. And the great thing about the placebo effect, and I was reading this study the other day, is that the placebo effect works whether the patient knows that it's a placebo or not. So you can tell someone and say, like, listen, here you go. Take this pill. It's completely empty. It's air and water, and it's going to do nothing. It's got no pharmaceutical power. So actually, just take three of these just to be sure, and it's going to make you feel better. And they will feel better, more likely than not, because that's just how the mind works. And I find that amazing, and one, that it works, and two, that the entire medical establishment keeps dismissing it. Why do you think that is? My personal perspective is because it goes against the need for pharmaceuticals and our system seems so driven by using pharmaceuticals. That's my perspective. You know, I would believe that at a larger scale. So when you look at it from an organization point of view, but what about the one-on-one, the single doctors? I mean, I don't know any doctor that likes prescribing drugs for the sake of prescribing drugs. I think we all do it when we have to do it and some more often than not because we believe that it'll serve a purpose, but we would like to be able to achieve that purpose without drugs. Like if you could ask any doctor, listen, if you were able to treat a patient with a drug or without a drug, would you first try it without the drug? And I think 99% of them will tell you, sure, I'll try the without the drug approach first. But we're still so against believing in these things. And it also brings me to ask you, what do you tell people who don't believe what you do, who will just immediately dismiss it as woo-woo and it can't be happening, it can't be working? Um, You know, I usually try and explain that it's actually all based in science and quantum physics, but some people don't really want to hear that part of it. You know, it just depends on how open someone is to exploring the actual scientific basis of something like this. And some people just want to stick the label of woo-woo on it and won't even listen, kind of like, la, 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 I don't want to hear what you have to say. (laughs) So if they're in that space, it's kind of like, it's hard to change someone's mind when they've locked the door and kind of won't let you in. But ultimately, some people, you know, if you can kind of explain there is scientific underpinnings, and it's all about kind of focus and intention, which is what's been shown with 
quantum physics. You know, if you look at something that wave particle experiments, you look at an experiment looking for the wave, you see a wave. If you look at it looking for particles, you see particles. So it's like your focus of what you expect to see creates the reality. And I think that's the same thing in our health. If we expect to see our health progress in a negative way and get worse and worse and worse, we start to create that. If we start to expect, hey, I could heal, my body could get better, we can also start to create that. And that usually helps to explain as well why we start seeing all these snowball effects when people start either, for instance, putting on weight or losing weight. And people suddenly realize that, oh my God, if I start eating better and it's just a little bit better, it doesn't necessarily have to be like dramatically huge change. I can start getting more energy and I can start working out more and I can start losing weight and I can start looking good. And it just keeps literally snowballing because the more you feed that idea in your head, the more that your head believes it and starts telling the rest of your body. And that's why certain people, and you can think of, for instance, Tony Robbins and people like that. And they say like, well, just keep repeating it. And of course, you're not going to believe it at first, but if you keep saying it and keep saying it, keep saying it, eventually it becomes your reality. And I do think there's a lot of power there. So let's just switch gears a little bit though and get a bit more practical. What do you think, for instance, because the basis of this is to listen to your body. That's why it's called you know, body talk. So what is one key way that people can begin listening to their bodies and what their bodies are telling them? So one of my favorite ways is just to teach people to take a few minutes to get quiet. So you kind of find yourself in a space like you were going to meditate, you know, take a few deep breaths. So you're not distracted, but just fully present with your body. And then just start to ask your body some questions, you know, ask your body, what does it want you to know? If you have a pain or a physical symptom or some sort of health issue that you specifically want to focus on, like ask that area of your body. In the story of my knee, I could have just asked my knee, what is its message for me? And I always like to say the first couple of times you do this, if you've never done it before, you may not hear anything. Like don't dismiss it because you did it once and you're like, I didn't get anything because it's kind of a skill and you kind of have to practice it a few times. But usually if you do it and you keep repeating it for several days, your body will be like, oh, I guess maybe you do want to know what I'm going to share. And usually, you know, it's just kind of that intuitive sense of something. So I always like to say, you know, our intuition speaks to us in different ways. Like some people will see something, it'll be kind of like a picture will pop in your mind. Some people might hear words pop into their head, you might just know something like just that profound sense of like, oh, that's what this is. So it can come in many ways. But if we create that space of what do you want to tell me? And what do you need is the other question I like to ask, because sometimes something like a headache, it's like if you ask what it needs, it maybe is something as simple as you're dehydrated, drink some water, please. <laughs> and you're like going around, oh, I have this headache and I should, you know, probably take some Tylenol or some aspirin because my head is killing me. And if you drink some water that your body wanted, you might just say, oh, the headache went away. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned something very interesting and it is developing this as a skill. I've always been surprised. I've been meditating for a while now. And whenever I bring it up to somebody who doesn't, they say that they don't like it or I tried it and it just doesn't work. And I tell them, listen, it's like you suddenly decide that you want to take up golf and you want to start golfing and you've never hit a golf ball in your life. And you go to the driving range, you try it twice and you don't hit it and you say, oh, it doesn't work. Golf is a scam. It doesn't work. No, you need to learn how to hit the ball, right? 
So why do we think that we suddenly are going to be able to, after 38, 39, 40 years of life, we suddenly decide, oh, I want to meditate and I'm just going to sit down and close my eyes and it's just not flowing. And I keep thinking of all these things and it's not bringing all these answers. And it's exactly that. It's just what I tell them, like, there's no way of doing it wrong. You just need to do it. And maybe after a minute, you're just completely sick of it and tired and that's fine. But then come back the next day for another minute and the next day for another minute. And just like you said, ask, ask your body, what do you need? Or how do you feel? Or how can I help you? And eventually, just like you very well described it, it's probably not going to talk directly with words back to you, but you might get this picture, you might get this image, you might get this memory, you might get all these different things. And the same thing happens when you meditate, by the way, tell you to quiet your mind and suddenly you start seeing all these different things that you want or that you have to do or that are in your way and that can empower you. So yeah, thank you so much for bringing up the fact that it is a skill and that people need to work at it. Right. Cause I've heard people just kind of try and dismiss it like meditation or meditation is funny too. Cause people think their mind should just instantly be quiet. And it's like most of the time people who've meditated for years will say my mind hardly ever is quiet, you know? Well, and the thing is nowadays, this is getting harder and harder because we don't have time in solitude. In the past, so for instance, even when probably you and I were growing up, and even obviously before that, when our parents' generation, and even before that, it was easy. Kids would be bored at some times. You learn how to be bored. You'd figure out things to do, and that's why you started building up things with sticks, and you'd start playing soccer out in the street with a can and kicking it around, because you learned... You, figure out how to be bored. You figure out what to do with your thoughts. We had thoughts. I remember sitting out, just thinking of nothing, staring out into empty space at times. And and nowadays you don't see that. Even with adults, we don't have a single moment of solitude. And it sounds a bit crass at some point, but even when you go to the toilet, you're never alone. You've got your phone and you're checking your Twitter, you're checking your Instagram, you're texting, you're doing all these things. We don't have one minute of solitude. So how are we going to listen to our brains? I mean, forget even meditating, but how are we going to listen to our bodies? And I think that is so, so, so important. Yeah, it is. We do live in a world that is like constant input and stimulation and we haven't learned how to just be still and be quiet. Is this also something that you work with, you know, with your clients, with the people that you help? How does this really work? Like, if we were your clients, so everyone listening, if we wanted to get started with something like this, is this something that you go in for a session with you? Is this something that you kind of have homework and you have assignments that you work on once you go home? How does it normally work when somebody wants to start learning these skills? Working with me is there's a facilitated part of the process, which is ultimately using the tool of the body talk system. So that's something I can teach to my clients because it's a whole system of healing. So I'm kind of helping tune into their bodies and getting deeper information and kind of being their neutral um, observer. So it's like, what is this about for them? What needs to come up? And then I'm sharing with them what the story is that we're unpacking and addressing. But there is, of course, I'm very big on kind of the homework and the self-empowerment part of the process. So I'm always teaching people other things that they can start to do at home for themselves to support their bodies better, to have a new relationship with their body, to listen. So it's kind of both. 
Yeah, and to have these tools for the rest of their life, right? Because, you know, they will eventually need to heal again at some point and you don't necessarily want them to continue saying, oh my God, I feel awful, but I can't talk to Lynn until next week or next month or, or whatever like that. So I think that's incredibly powerful. That's super interesting. And I'll definitely want to learn a little bit more about that because, you know, the more I started going into this regenerative medicine side, and it has a lot to do with like anti-aging and even functional medicine, a lot of, and it is a bit of a stray from traditional medicine. And we have to start like really welcoming all these different healing modalities. And I realized that as traditionally trained doctors, we're far from the only people with the absolute truth in terms of health and healing. As a matter of fact, most of the time, traditionally trained doctors, we aren't necessarily poster boys for health and wellness. And I've spoken about this with other doctors before, and they say, listen, when you get a patient that tells you that they stopped going to their other doctor because it was obvious that this doctor wasn't following their own health recommendations and wasn't leading a healthy lifestyle, then you realize that we must be also doing something that is not entirely right. So instead of just throwing stones at one another, I think the best way is to just welcome everyone in and complement each other's knowledge and expertise and figure out what works and what doesn't. It's just so much more powering. So before we wrap up, Let's imagine, for instance, and we did this a little bit just now, but let's imagine that maybe one of our listeners or maybe someone they know and care about has just been diagnosed with one of these life-changing illnesses. What would be your top two or three recommendations for this person to start doing in order to regain their health? So I think one of the biggest things is start working on your mindset immediately. Like you've just been given that news, but try and work to detach yourself from that as your identity and do some work no matter you know what system, what tool comes up for you around healing. Because it ultimately, I see it as a trauma. Receiving news like that is traumatic, no matter what the diagnosis is. I always refer to it as your life before and your life after. And that moment that separates the two is trauma. So doing some work around that. And then just starting to look at maybe some simple things that you can do in your lifestyle to support your body and healing whether that be looking at nutritional pieces that can support you developing a new relationship with your body and starting to listen to it, moving your body, even if it's, you know, in a different way than you used to be able to, I work a lot with people in pain. So to say, you know, go to the gym and, you know, do a hard workout is not going to work for people like that, especially in the beginning of their healing process, you know, still finding ways to listen to what the body needs for healing and and simple lifestyle factors are huge. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more with the fact that you need to detach yourself from that diagnosis. It's okay if, you know what, now I know what I have, but I am not this diagnosis. And I always told that to patients, you are not multiple sclerosis. You are not lupus. You are not this and that. You are John, you are Linda, you are Emily, who happens to have this one thing, but you only have that part. That is only a small part of your life. You still have everything else. And maybe you cannot do everything else. Like you very well said, you cannot do everything else like you used to before, but there are a lot of things that you can still do. So if there are things that you enjoy, that'll help you forget a little bit about this or that aren't compromised by having this diagnosis, make sure you do that. If you enjoy time with your friends, make sure you spend time with your friends. If you can go out in nature, you know, the more I read about, for instance, the healing properties of just being out in nature and being exposed to sunlight and taking walks and being with yourself, doing all these things, there 
I cannot think of a single doctor, no matter what kind of training they have, who says, you know what, no, 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 don't go out, don't go out for a walk and make sure that you're not, you know, you're, you're not sleeping well, you're not doing all those things that that would have to be very intense. So obviously doing all those things, but I think that working on your mindset is incredibly powerful. There's a book that I've recommended before, and I'm sure that you've probably read it. It's called The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. And I keep forgetting the author's name, and I'm incredibly sorry about that because it's a really good book. And it helps us understand how all of these different traumas start piling up on our body and eventually they will manifest. And a lot of the times they don't manifest as obviously as, for instance, your case of a knee pain. A lot of the times they're manifesting in chronic forms and fatigue and smaller things that you have every day. And that might be even worse than having an acute pain that you know you have to address it right away, correct? So all of those things are very interesting. And I would invite everyone who's listening to us right now to really consider all these different modalities. And it cannot hurt to be more mindful and more aware of our body and listening to it more. So Lynn, this has been such an amazing conversation and I completely lost track of time. (laughs) But before we wrap things up, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. And I do want to recognize you for the work you do and for helping as many people as you do to find true health by listening to their bodies and allowing them to heal. I'm incredibly grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. (laughs) Oh, not a problem. Not a problem. But if our listeners want to learn more about you, perhaps even work with you, where can they go to do that? So the best way to find me is my website, which is heartfirehealingllc.com. And I'm also starting a new podcast. So you can hear more of like my story. I have the first episode is just released, which is all my story of going through this process and this journey. So same title as my book, You Are Not Your Diagnosis. That's great. As always, everyone listening, you can find the links to everything Lynn just mentioned, her website, we'll put her social media profiles, her podcast, as well as many other things like our complete show notes, including a full transcript and a link to send your questions to me or to Lynn over at dre.show forward slash 027. And remember that you can also find all of those links in your podcast app by scrolling down to this episode's description. But, 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 but do not do this if you're driving. Lynn, <laughs> thank you once again for joining us. This has been a wonderful conversation for everyone listening. Thank you once again for tuning in. I'm Dr. E, the stem cell guy. You are on the highway to health and I'm your guide to get you there. Thank you for listening to Dr. E's Highway to Health show, helping you learn the science of living ageless. Did you enjoy the show? Please like, share, and subscribe where you listen to podcasts. Dr. E wants to hear from you. Go to dre.show. Again, that's dre.show. Until next time, this is Dr. E's Highway to Health, helping you live ageless. Wow, I really liked this episode. Hope you did too. This has been episode 27 with Lyndall Mastro Thompson. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to learn more, make sure to check out the show notes and the links to everything we mentioned in this episode's description. Before we go, remember to also sign up for a free copy of the book I'm working on about stem cell treatments for patients. Just visit dre.show forward slash book. And that is it for today. Thank you all for tuning in. I look forward to seeing you here next week. I'm Dr. E, the stem cell guy. You are on the highway to health, and I'm your guide to get you there.